And I'm wondering what's going on as people, as the adults are watching the TV news that night, they must be thinking, is this the new rock and roll? People making animal noises with a single harmonica playing? Yeah. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. On this episode, I sat down with Rudy Cheeks to talk about his 50 years in music. We covered his early days sneaking into frat parties, all the way to his induction into the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame. Enjoy the episode and follow along on Facebook and Instagram, at UTB for photos of some rare memorabilia. Did you grow up in a musical family? Did you No. No? Um, no, in fact, I don't know if anybody played. My father played a little bit of clarinet, I think, when he was in... Uh, when he was in high school, something like that. And that's it. I bet it. But I, he never played it for me or anything like that. Although he had one down in the basement. He was trying to get me interested in playing it. Oh, really? But of course, you got to remember, this is like the 1960s. This is the early 1960s. I mean, everybody wanted to play guitars. Nobody yep. wanted to play clarinet. I mean, he's coming out of the big band era. Okay. You know, my yeah. father was born in 1921, you know. Mm-hmm. So I and so this is the 1960s, and he was trying to, and I wasn't really interested at that time. Interestingly enough, that eventually is one of the instruments I did play. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, no, I did not come from a musical family. In fact, they didn't. They rarely played records or anything. I'm trying to remember the records they did have around the house that I did hear. Uh, they had, oh, you know what I remember uh, listening to when I grew up, and ended, ended up subsequently having a real effect on me as something I really liked. Phil Harris records. Okay. Now, Phil Harris did funny songs. Look out, stranger, I'm a Texas Ranger, and what a time I had with Minnie the Mermaid down in her seaweed bungalow. I mean, I, I know people don't know these songs. These yeah. are songs from the 1940s, you know? Okay. Who was it that introduced you more to music? Did you have siblings? Did you have any? Nope, that, nope. You know? I had an older sister who was really not that interested. I mean, she liked Del Shan and Runaway, you know, stuff okay. like that, you know? Yeah. Not really. I mean, you listen to the radio. You listen to the AM radio at the time, the Top 40 radio. Okay. And everybody did that kind of. And so I just kind of loved music. You know, I just, I just, like uh, just was, was I started listening or? to music. The first record I ever had was a Little Richard record that oh, my right. mother bought me. That's awesome. Strangely enough. I know, but yeah. it was Little Richard gospel. Okay. It wasn't Little Richard uh, rock and roll. But, yeah. And the first record I bought, I believe was uh, Bob Dylan, who was either uh, uh, the Times They Were Changing or the one just before that, which was uh, the uh, freewheeling Bob Dylan. When did you start playing music then? Well, I started. I picked up the harmonica after listening to Bob Dylan, but then I picked up on the blues guys soon after that. Okay. Like uh, Paul Butterfield became a favorite, and also, um, oh, there used to be a great song called Mystic Eyes by them, which was Van Morrison's band. This is a teenage Van Morrison. Yeah. And he played a great harmonica solo on that. So that was the first really cool harmonica playing I heard. It was Van Morrison and uh, Paul Butterfield. 
so how did you learn to play the harmonica then? I just picked, I just, just bought them. I, I, yeah. I, the first couple I bought with green stamps, strangely enough. They only What's cost that? a buck fifty each. You don't know what green stamps are. No, That's no, right. This is another ancient thing, <laughs> right? Well, when you'd go to the grocery store and buy stuff, they sometimes they would give you these bonus things. They'd give you these green stamps, and you'd fill out these books of green stamps. And I think it was like maybe two books of green stamps. I mean, buy, at the okay, grocery store, so they like give them loyalty. to you as a bonus thing. Yeah, and 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 you'd put the green stamps, in, and and I think for two books of green stamps, you could get a harmonica. And that's how I got my first harmonica, which was obviously in the key of C. I didn't know about different keys or anything yep. like that. I all learned this. So I got a couple of harmonicas. Do you remember and what I, store that was? Oh, it was in Almax and Seekonk. Okay. The stuff I was good at was stuff that came out of the mouth. In other words, wind instruments. Uh, I, 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 singing and harmonica. And then eventually I got a clarinet. And then after that, saxophones. Okay. So, but that, and so everything was like, it was oriented, you know, that, that it was, came out that, that way. Self-taught yeah. as well? Oh, totally. Yeah. I never took a lesson on anything. Wow. I, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally self-taught. It's all, it's all ear. I play totally by ear. Yeah. I never learned how to write anything. In fact, and then eventually when I started writing songs, and this was with the, um, the Fabulous Motels, so we're going to about 1970 now. You jump ahead to 1970, and I would sit at a piano all day long for days at a time. I would, I would go a couple hours a day on a piano, until yeah. I could, and, and I would bang out songs that way. I would teach myself how to write songs that way. Wow. It was basically play, playing left hand with both right and left. In other words, I wasn't oh, okay. doing too much. Every now and then I'd play a little, little gotcha. thing here and there with my right hand, a little bit of melodic stuff. But but basically, what it was was chords, you know. Okay. But prior to that, though, what was the first band you played in, or when did you? Start well, when I, music? when I first okay, when I was in high school, Joe Houlihan and and me and a couple other people started a, I guess you'd have to call it a skiffle band, and you could call it a jug band, except we didn't have a jug. Okay. And it was a skiffle band, which was like you know, kind of like what the Beatles first. Yeah, got yeah, out. exactly. You know, the, the Quarrymen was yeah, a skiffle yeah. band. Yeah. You know? And it was a sketch, which was just like, you know, basically acoustic guitars playing like rock and roll songs up. And we were playing folky songs and stuff that we knew. And, and Joe knew uh, Celtic sea ch shanties and stuff like that, you know. Oh, wow. And we were both, we were both, and Joe and I were both incredibly fond of Bob Dylan. Now, also at the same time, 66, 67, my best friends, uh, who I worked at a summer camp with, started a rock and roll band called the Oxbow Incidents. All right. That was guy named Howie McDonald, guy named John Holsher, who later played in a couple bands with me, mm -hmm. Dave Brooks, who was one of my best friends growing up from my neighborhood, and a uh, guy named Bob Wiegand, uh, Jim Carr, Jack Ryan. I'm trying to think of all the people who were in this band. Oh, the original singer was a guy named Paul Lister, Tiny Lister. And... Uh, Basically, they started this rock and roll band at this summer camp that most of us worked at. We were all counselors at the summer camp about 1966. And Which camp was this? It was, it was called the Episcopal Conference Center. Where it still exists. It's in uh, Pasco, Rhode Island. Oh, okay. And we, um, and we would play. I mean, they would play. And I would sit in on a harmonica on a few songs usually with them. And so I wasn't trying to start a band then, but they had the band. And I got to hang. I hung around with them. And. 
So, so were you playing other places? Uh, well, they were playing. They were playing uh, a lot of fraternity parties, mostly at Brown. They would play the Brown fraternity parties. Yeah. And I would I would go, go along with them usually, mm -hmm. you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, and I would play harmonica with them. And then I remember one time I snuck into another fraternity party that was going on there, and I sat in on harmonica with the band playing there. And that name of that band was Black River Circus. They were from RISD. Now, I'm in high school. These guys are from RISD. Later on, two of the guys in Black River Circus tend to turned out to be guys who were in the fabulous motels with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, strangely enough, well, I did. Well, they remembered the night I snuck in the window. <laughs> oh, you. All right. So it wasn't even like snuck in through the door. You. No, I snuck in through a window. They weren't going <laughs> to let me in the door because I was obviously underage. Yeah, this okay. was a fraternity party, and I was like, you know, 16, 17 years old. Wow. And I guess they would they would get in trouble if they were caught, you know, serving beer to a underage person. Yeah. You know? Okay. So. The Fabulous Motels, that started in 1970. 70. Yeah, okay. So was that like your first? That was my first real band, yeah. Can you talk about that how was that, me. that came about? Wait, that came about because there was a band called Pigtown. Now, Pigtown was Tim Duffy's band. Now, Tim Duffy's a guy I also grew up with when we were in grammar school, but then he moved and went to high school in Barrington. He went to RISD. Mm -hmm. So he was at RISD, and he put together this band called, first he had a band called Snake and the Snatch, but then he had this next band, was called Pigtown. And Pigtown was all songs written by Tim. It was about growing up in Pawtucket. Okay. And so, I mean, I immediately could connect with that. Yeah, yeah. Because this, you know, like, you know, because uh, I, I knew what all the songs were about. So Tim was my, was kind of like my mentor. I mean, I, I, I loved what he was doing. So anyway, so what happened was he he graduated from RISD in 1970, and he went to he moved to Colorado, mm -hmm. he moved to Boulder, Colorado, and all the guys who were in Pigtown no longer had a band. But one of the people who was in Pigtown was his cousin Stevie Stresbeck, aka Stevie Thunder, who also grew up with me and was in my class. And Steve and I, I when I reconnected with Stevie when he. He, he 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 was at Northeastern after high school, but then he transferred to URI where I was, mm -hmm. and we hooked up again. And he, he's the one who turned me on to what Timmy was doing, because Timmy was his cousin. Okay. So so he says, listen to what Tim's doing, and he played me the tapes of Pigtown and stuff. And I said, holy cow, this is fabulous. This is great, you know. And you know, but Pigtown, like, but then Pigtown ended. Tim moved. And all these guys were hanging around. So Stevie and I, we put together a radio show on the URI campus. It was called the Stevie Thunder Bad Taste and Immaturity Hour. Okay. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and we, uh, oh, yeah. And, and I was like, I was the co-host with Stevie on the yeah. show. And, uh, and what happened was is that he would invite some of the guys who were in Pigtown from RISD, from Providence, to come down to URI to be on the radio. See, we, we would take any chance we could to perform anywhere we could on any medium we could. Yep. And this was radio. I mean, we didn't have any thought of getting into, t busting into TV at that time, although a couple of us did eventually. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so Charlie Rocket, Charles Rocket, a.k.a. Charles Clavery is his real name. Mm -hmm. Charlie Rocket, Dan Gosh, Dave Hansen, uh, a.k.a. Sport Fisher, would come down to URI from Providence and we'd all do the and we'd do these radio shows. Mostly it was me, Charlie, and Steve though doing the shows. And uh, Charlie eventually, eventually we got kicked off the air. Yeah. 
because Charlie, uh, the news was coming on. Now, even at a college station then, the news was sacrosanct. In other words, what Charlie did was the news got, the newscast was coming into the news booth to do the news, and Charlie just wouldn't let him in. He kicked him <laughs> out. Charlie walked in and made up the news on the air, which is very interesting because years later, what Charlie did was made up news. Charlie was did did uh, Saturday Night Live's uh, uh, weekend update. He was the guy who did it in the year yeah, 1980. Okay. Yeah. Right? So anyway, so he started out by doing that many years earlier, 10 years earlier uh, at URI. And we immediately were told by the, UR, by, the, by the people who ran the radio station, they said, you guys are off. That was it. We couldn't do the show anymore. So the Stevie Thunder Bad Taste and Immaturity Hour was off the air. Okay. So that's how I met all those guys. So what happened was is that Stevie did this film of the last performance that Pigtown did, which we, and he called it Pigtown at Livestock. And what it was, because we were making fun of Woodstock also yeah, yeah, at that yeah. time. <laughs> See, that was what our attitude was towards hippies. We, we thought they were worthy of making fun of. You know, we, we called Woodstock livestock. Yeah. So what we did was we, 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 we decided to have a, a showing of the films and some other stuff. I took some slides and I did my parts dressed in a rooster suit, showing these slides, these really bad slides that I made. And somebody, uh, the head of the theater department, who became a close friend of mine, saw this and she thought my part was really great. She told me she thought it was really, really funny. So that encouraged me. Mm -hmm. And um, all these people came down from RISD to see this, this show. We called it Polaroid Sausage. And it was one night, like a Tuesday night on campus. We were in the student ballroom. The place was totally packed. And it was an amazing show. There was music in the show. Charlie played his accordion with a wah-wah pedal. We also had a laser show, a laser beam show. We knew this guy, Chris Settlemeyer, who had, who who did stuff with laser beams. So he was you from RISD were too. creating. You created a band for. This so well, well, so no, what happened was this: we wanted to go on tour with Polaroid Sausage, yeah. but it was impossible to try. We wanted to go to play other colleges. Okay. So Tim Duffy's younger sister Patrice was at Connecticut College. But Patrice sold it to the to the student entertainment committee there by having by playing tapes of Tim's music or her older brother's music. Yeah. So they thought it was a band. So when we went down there, me and Stevie and Charlie and Dan Gosh and another guy, Ron Levy, we we went down to um, we went down there from URI to sign the contract and for, to do the show. And when finally they kept saying to us, well, when does the band play? When does the band play? We finally got sick of hearing that. And Charlie just said, the band plays at nine o'clock. We said, okay. And so then we had a meet. We had said, okay, we got to have a meeting. So the rest of it, we all went and had a private meeting. And we, and, and we said, okay, now we got to start a band. Okay, who, who does music? Okay, Charlie, you play the accordion, right? Yeah, so it's and then they said, Bruce, do you play anything? I said, yeah, I can play harmonica and clarinet and I can sing. They said, okay, and we all got, to, okay, we got to get a guitar player. Okay, let's call Jeff Thomas. And so, and, and Char Stevie Thunder also played accordion. Okay. So that's how the Fabulous Motel started, with two accordion players, believe <laughs> it or not. Nobody ever heard of a rock and roll band. Two accordion players and a clarinet player. Who ever heard of a rock and roll band like that? Awesome. So we were completely unique right from the yeah. beginning. And the whole idea was to do, like, the funniest show ever, but also to play rock and roll songs.
one of the things we were doing, we were changing the name of the band every time we played. Okay. The first time we played, we weren't the Fabulous Motels. We were, oh, Electric Driveway. Then we were Iron Grandmother and the Swinging Potatoes. How about those are the names? And every time we played, we were playing under a different name. Yeah. So how nuts is that? You know? Yeah, yeah. Then the next thing we did was, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember one time years later, somebody, I, I was walking across the street in South County, and somebody says to me, hey, aren't you in a band? I said, yeah. And this was around the time of the Fabulous Motels. I said, yeah. The guy goes, I, I saw you. He said, electric driveway. <laughs> I go, yeah. I'm just, I don't know how to answer that question, you know? Yeah. We, well, we called ourselves electric uh, driveway. Settle on the fabulous motels, was it? Well, it, it was, well, what would happen? It was, it was, it became the one default one. So we went with that. I don't know where it came from. And what were your shows like? I mean, it sounds like it was very performance. It was based. very performance oriented and it was very, but it was, but it was legit. And we started writing our own songs right away, too. Yeah. So and, and until finally, by the time we, we, after we'd been doing it for about a year or two, it was all I was all originals. Yeah. And where were you starting to play then? We're starting to mostly colleges. We couldn't get gigs in nightclubs. The only nightclub that hired us was a place that was called the Jail. Now it used to be called the Warehouse, and then it was called they changed the name to the Jail. Where was that? It was down in it was down India Point, India Point Park. It was down India Point, right on the waterfront. And it was owned by a guy named uh, Glance, Leon Glance, who was a cousin of, and the reason why he loved the, uh, the young adults, I mean, the Fabulous Motels, was because, um, for two reasons. One was because he, he, he was, said he was, he was Milton Berle's cousin, first of all. <laughs> all so right. he was deeply into comedy, and he knew yeah. that we were funny, yeah. number one. And then the other reason why was because of Barbara, who used to book the band for us and was involved in the performance too, Barbara Conway, a.k.a. Simone Cuck, who was also part of the crew mm -hmm. at the time. She was also involved in Polaroid Sausage, and in the early, and in the, she was in the Fabulous Motels. And, but she was, uh, but she, she was the leader of the tantalizing tampoons. That was, that was Barbara Benita, Benita Flanders, who's a great artist in and of herself, mm -hmm. and another artist named uh, Mary Clark. And, and, uh, and the three of them would do dance stuff to the music that uh, other people in the Fabulous Motels played. Dan Gosh was in the band just playing toy drums and dancing. He was just strictly there for visuals. It wasn't like anything else. Yeah. And, and we, were, um, just, we were totally unique. We did get to play like we played. I remember we played Bunk Day, where all the high school students are bunking school, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're playing hooky. And they all go down to Roger Williams Park, and we we got we were one of the bands that was asked to play there that day. We played, and we were at, they actually had us on the news. We were the music in the background was they were doing the news report on Channel oh, wow. Ten, but we were in the middle of a song called Men, and in the song Men, and it's also it's on our album. There's a part where I'm, and you can hear this is the part that's on the news. Da 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 da. Anyway, you'd have to be old enough to remember this song. And I'm playing that on the harmonica, and the rest of the people in the band are making animal noises, grunting and and neighing like horses and stuff like that, and howling like wolves and stuff like that. And that's what you're hearing in the background. And I'm wondering what's going on as people, as the adults, are watching the TV news that night. They must be thinking, is this the new rock and is roll? People making <laughs> animal noises with a single harmonica playing? Yeah. Then with your experience, have you encountered a lot of other bands? Sounds Nobody like was doing that. 
Yeah. Nobody. And very few bands were writing their own songs at this time either. Because the business, if you wanted to play, if you wanted to play in clubs and, and make some money, you had to and be heard by audiences. It was cover bands. That was the whole business at yeah. that time. So we did you record with the Fabulous Motels? We, yeah, we did do some recording, but it, it took a while. It, we, we didn't we didn't record right away. You have to now. The other thing too is this is at that at this time, it wasn't really that I wanted to be a musician. I was never. I mean, you know, I, I liked playing and it was fun. Yeah. And I enjoyed. And I was starting to write songs. I wrote the first song I ever wrote was called "Your Mother's a Fish." Then I wrote another song called Everybody Should Like Butter. We did both of those with the fabulous motels. Now, these were like crazy songs. Now, to, to my way of thinking, there's no market for this. But, of course, how stupid I to show you how stupid I was. What I thought I would do, this is what I wanted to be always since I was in high school. I wanted to write humorous essays. I wanted to be my idol and my, my real influence was S.J. Perelman who wrote humorous essays and actually grew yep. up in Providence. I, I didn't know at the time, but I found out later he was from Providence. Went to classical high school, graduated from Brown. But you were uh, looking to enter, like make people laugh. As a, yeah, as a yeah right. Yeah, I wanted to make yeah laugh. And, but I also realized I had the ability to write music and, and, could, and, could make, and could get people to dance, too. So I wanted to combine the whole thing. Yeah, okay. So what happened was I, I, I got out of that and I went into, oh, I got a job. Uh, working with people with uh, intellectual disabilities. And I went and did that. And I'm glad I did that because those people had, the people I was working with had a profound influence on me. They were, they were, I was very impressed with their creativity and their, and, and you know, and their, their kindness, their basic human kindness. So, yeah. So anyway, I, I ended up living in Newport and doing that for a few, for a year or so. This was after the motels? This is after the motel. This yeah. is after the motels. Motels around for it was a so the motels were around for like from 1970 to the end of 1973. Okay. About what happened was is we um, Jeff and and uh, and Charlie decided they wanted to start a band, and Charlie was going to be the the front man. Charlie was going to be the you know the main guy, and they invited a mutual friend, a guy that I kind of introduced them to, David Byrne, to try out as the guitar player. Okay. Uh, but David didn't make it. They they told him, "Nah, you're not good enough. Get out of here." Wow. And and the fact was that he wasn't at the time. I mean, because they wanted a real slick guitar player who could play all very fan. And David was a pretty basic guitar player, you know. Mm -hmm. But David did have some good songs. In fact, he played "Psycho Killer" at the uh, I believe at the uh, tryout thing, and a couple other songs that he wrote too. Yeah. And uh, and you know they liked the songs, and we all liked David, but. So, after after he tried out for for that band, David called up Chris and Tina, who we also knew, and they moved to New York and they started Talking Heads, and that's where Talking Heads started in New York. Yeah, wow. After that, and we remained good friends over the years. Yep. So I'm down in Newport by 1974. I get a phone call from Charlie Charlie Rocket. Now that the band never worked out with him and Jeff, and he's doing a job running a nightclub, being the manager of a of a discotheque, you get this, called Dimples in East Providence. And he says, I, you want to be as my special guest on April Fool's? I said, sure. And I said, and he wants me to wear my wedding dress with my plastic molded Batman top, right, that I got from John Scherf, our old guitar player in the motels. So I said, sure. So I show up at Dimples to do this thing. And so all the old motels show up for this show. 
we're all there. We tear the place apart. The next day, Charlie is fired as the manager. Of the place. <laughs> because I mean, we're like, we're nuts. You know, we're truly nuts. I mean, what would happen is we would just push the envelope until we get fired or asked to leave. That performance there, was that how things kind of started to... Well, to here's what happened. The, okay, here's what happened is next. So I moved back to Providence, and uh, I call a meeting of all the people who used to be in the fabulous motels. They said, okay, who wants in? I want to start a band. There's something a little bit on the mellow side now. A bomb went off at 12 o'clock In my neighborhood last night And the people all rushed to the streets To see a dreadful sight Ketchup and mustard stained the walls There were french fries all around I thought I heard some children weep as McDonald's hit the ground And it just so happened that we were right on the cutting edge of that whole thing. We were a little bit earlier than all the other bands, bands like the Schemers and all these other bands that played the living room. We preceded them by a couple of years. And we were, the, and when and Lupo's was open, the living room was doing jazz at the time. So before the living room started doing the new rock bands yep. that were doing original music, Lupo's was the place to play. And it was, but it was mostly R and D bands. Rumful played there, for yep. instance, you know, and and then there were other bands that went, well, and then Riz and Wild Turkey Band, they were also yeah, at, yeah. around the same time, too. This is about 75, 76. Okay, so you'd say it, it was about a year of, of just writing these songs? Exactly, it's just a year of, of rehearsal and, and writing. Yeah, okay, and how would you describe those early young adult songs? Was it... Uh, Oh, there was songs that we continued to of, a lot. Of of we continued to or? do what? Well, we used a couple of old motel songs. We did. Yeah. Do, we used to do a couple of old motel songs, like um, uh, "Christmas in Japan in July." That was a motel song. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I wrote. You know, I was writing songs, and Dave was writing songs. One of my earliest, my earliest young adult song was called uh, "Nixon's Underwear," right. and that was. I, I wrote a number of songs. I was very much into. Um, history and politics. Okay. So Nixon's underwear was like, you know, I was out in California, spied some wing trip, wing tip tracks on the beach, looked behind a sand dune and just within my reach was a pair of shorts emblazoned with the presidential seal. I picked them up and took a look. My head began to reel. You are now the owner of Nixon's underwear. No, it's not a phony, the one and only pair. You ask me how I know this, come here and take a look. 
smudged in brown across the back, it says, I am not a crook. All right? That's the first verse. Yeah. I mean, and there are a couple other verses like that. So yeah. it's pretty, there's no known recordings of this available. Okay. You know. Yeah. Do you remember the first Young Adults show? Were you the Young yes. Adults at that time? Like, was that? Uh, no. We, well, we did. Uh, yes. The first. Well, the first time we played together was backing up a guy named Brute Force, who was kind of a who actually wrote songs for the Chiffons and stuff back in the fifties. Okay. Over at Leo's, and the first. So that was the first show, but we didn't have a name back then, mm -hmm. and we were just playing with Brute. But everybody came to see us because they were all curious because they knew we'd been rehearsing for a year and, yeah. they, and they were young and they were fabulous motels fans. Yeah. So the, the place was jammed and out into the street. They were, they were like, oh, they were blocking off the street. The next gig we had lined up was the uh, was a party. John Rector, who owned Leo's, wanted to do a big outdoor summer party for his regulars. But he wanted the band to play at it, and so we were the natural band. Mm -hmm. And and at that point, I had come up with the name. What happened was I was washing dishes at Leo's at the time. I was the dishwasher and janitor at Leo's. And one day when I'm washing dishes, I come up with this idea for a name. It's the um, uh, they used to have these um, these uh, these uh, things that you use to clean out pots and pans called chore boys. I wanted to call us the chore boys. But the guys in the but Jeff and Dave said can't be the chore boys. I said okay. So the next so a week later I said okay I got another name the young adults, and they said okay and they accepted that one that was good. So okay. So yeah. then that's when we became the young adults. So at the first young adults gig was in the back of Leo's, in July of 1976. The next gig we did was at Lupo's. And by this time, we've got Ed Valley. We've convinced Ed Valley to be mm -hmm. our guitarist. And so now we've finally got a full band. And we got, you know, we got guitar, uh, you know, bass, drums, keyboards, and me singing and playing saxophone. And it sounds like you And were, harmonica. Uh, it sounds like you were pretty successful just from the Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it was pretty strange. Well, we were fairly, yeah, we were, we were drawing people in the province area, the RISD crowd, you know, the RISD and Brown people would come down and see us, right? But then we became popular throughout the city, throughout, I mean, throughout the entire state, when uh, in 1977, there was a story about the young adults on the cover of the uh, Province Journal used to have a Sunday magazine that they did themselves called the Rhode Islander. And we, we had the cover story, it's the first time they ever did a cover story about a rock and roll band. Oh, wow. And they were calling us, you know, and they were saying, calling us artists, mm -hmm. which was, you know, rock and roll was not considered an art form locally at that time. You know, it was by Rolling Stone or something like that. Yeah. But like as far as a local newspaper to call rock and roll art was unheard of, you know, at that at that time. Yeah. Not in Rhode Island anyway. So we were very happy about that. And all of a sudden, yeah, everybody in the state knew about us. And they even had they've read the even if they hadn't seen us, they'd read the story. And they were calling out for songs that they read about in the story, you know. Okay. Strange. Yeah. And how would you describe a young adult show? <coughs> what was it? It was like the it was like it was a toned down version of the Fabulous Motels. In other words, it wasn't quite as show it wasn't quite as theatrical, but it was still heavily theatrical. And it was also very funny, funny songs. I would basically be the field general, as they used to call me, or front man or whatever the hell you want to call it. So I was like, I set the tone and the rhythm for the whole night. And Sport, Dave Hansen, 
would be, uh, he'd be playing drums, but he'd be singing half the songs. Like I would be singing the other half of the songs and we'd sing harmonies together and stuff like that. So, and, and because we were a real entertainment, we were, we were popular. Yeah. It got popular. Yeah. When people came to see us, they loved us. Yeah. And after a while, when we went to, we played at Lupo's, the place would be totally packed. I mean, we, we, in fact, we wouldn't even play weekends because he wouldn't give us the door on weekends and we wanted the door. Everywhere we went, guarantee against the door. And we always made the guarantee. Yeah. So we were making a thousand bucks a night. This is back in the nineteen seventies. Wow. Yeah. Seventy-six, seventy-seven, seventy-eight in Rhode Island, we're making a thousand bucks. Now nobody's making that kind of money. Yeah. And then we did a show in nineteen seventy-seven. Uh, Lupo wanted to get a, a, a big a big name, a big national name and he got Bo Diddley and he asked us to play with Bo. Yeah. So we did a whole week's worth of gigs. It turned out to be a week and a half because we sold out all the shows, two shows a night with Bo Diddley. Wow. And that was a big thing for us. And it was a big, and, and Bo loved us. Bo wanted to take us to Nevada with him. He wanted us to go to play in Reno. We said, nah, you can't pay us enough to do that. <laughs> We're making too much money here. Um, so Bo became a good friend and we did it the next year, 78 as well. Okay. When did you start recording with the young adults? So we, we like, recorded we, all our shows. All our, we recorded a lot of shows live. Yeah, a lot okay. of our performances recorded live. You know. Oh, we Musicians. still. Well, we, we we did the single "Complex World" and "Bear." Yeah. We did that about seventy six, I guess seventy six, seventy seven. I mean, you know, we used to be approached by people who just wanted to buy our songs. Tell you, this is a story that you, you don't know. Arrowsmith. We had a meeting with Arrowsmith's management. They wanted to buy some of our songs. They wanted to strip the lyrics off and use the music. Because they were impressed with our songs. Wow! Actually, that wasn't that. That was fabulous motels. That wasn't even young adults. That was fabulous oh, wow. motels. Wow. So we're talking about the late, yeah, the late. Uh, I mean, the uh, mid seventies. Yeah, we're, I remember having a meeting in the basement of a bar in Providence. Yeah. So you started to play outside of Rhode Island. Uh, oh, we played outside of Rhode Island right away. The first place we went to was Cambridge, Mass. Mm -hmm. We played up there, and we were very popular there. And we played in all over Connecticut. And then we started playing in New York. We were looking around for a good place to play in New York. We turned down Max's Kansas City. We turned down CBGB's because we said, eh, all the bands that have been signed have already been signed out of there. Let's find another place. We went to um, a place called Tracks on, uh, in Columbus Circle, 72nd Street. It was an underground club, and it was a showcase club. So therefore, in other words, the record company people would go in there. Okay. And so uh, that was what we wanted, you know. Yeah. And we got over great at tracks. They loved us there, and we did really well. And we and every time we'd go there, we'd meet some interesting people. I remember one time, well, I knew he was coming, uh, Joel Dorn, who was a famous jazz producer. He produced albums on Atlantic. He, in fact, he produced some of my favorite albums. He produced uh, uh, Yousef, uh, the Blue Yousef Latif. He produced a couple of Mose Allison albums that I love. Uh-huh. And so I knew who this guy was. He's sitting at the soundboard. So and who is he sitting with? Leon Redbone. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, they were recording Redbone at the time. He and yeah, Doc yeah. were recording Redbone. So so I get to talk to Leon. We, sh I gave him a cigar and stuff. And we. Uh, back in in Rhode Island, though, like where you said you played at Lupo's, where you playing in other We played at Lupo's and, in Ro and we also played at Harpo's regularly in Newport. That, and we would jam the place there. And he would give us a thousand against the door. Yep. And we would, uh, you know, a guy's name is Dave Haddad, a.k.a. Crazy Dave. We played there. Those are the only two places we played regularly. Okay. 
So how long did the young adults go on for? Well, we went on until um, late 1979, 1980, really. The end of 1979, I decided to quit. I said, all right, this is it. I think this has gone as far as we can, and we were really good, but we're not getting a record deal. We'd already had the owner of Island Records, Chris Blackwell, came out to see us and and decided, you know, when I drink, dropped a drink in his lap, I guess he decided we were not going to get a record deal. <laughs> yeah. Talking Heads told me to go see us. Actually, it was their manager, the late Gary Kerfurst, who, who, who you know, who told uh, Blackwell to go to go to see the young adults. And, and Doc Palmer seconded the opinion. In fact, Doc was the one who he would call me up at night and say, Blackwell's coming to see you. I said, oh, good. That's great. And yeah. He was supposed to come to Boston, but he decided would be cheaper to take a limo from New York City. I mean, and, I mean, Blackwell lived in Jamaica, but he was in New York City for like a, a, about a, a few weeks. And he only wanted to see a few bands while he was in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he decided it would be cheaper to take a limo to Waterbury, Connecticut, which is very close to New York. Yep. It's on that side of Connecticut. And then it would be to, um, to rent a private plane, a private jet, to go to Boston to see us play at, in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And we, were, we killed them in Cambridge. And, of course, we're, we're playing at some strip mall in Waterbury, Connecticut, and they don't even understand us there. They, they hate us. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, guys are coming up to us after we've done two sets of original music. Guys would come up to me in, in, in the club, and they would say, you guys do any Steely Dan? And I'm just like, haven't you figured out what well, we do original music? This is an original thing. We're our own people. We're not trying to be any other band. We don't want to be like any other band. We want to be a totally. I mean, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I, I don't know how to talk to these people. Yeah. How do you How do you talk to people like that? And and but at least we always had good musicians playing with us because they could see the value of what we were doing. They could see how great the music was. They could see that we knew how to write songs. They saw we knew how to play. Yeah. They saw you know. I mean, they saw we knew how to arrange songs. Everything. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do in the meantime. So I, all I knew is that I needed that. All right, the young adults thing, okay, this has run its course as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I, and I wasn't sure if I was going to stay with music or what I was going to do. So what I did was I quit, and that was the end of the band. However, right around the same time, around the time I quit, which was late 1979, Paco Zimmer, who I love, Paco was running the center stage nightclub, best nightclub ever in Rhode Island. And he said, he says, you guys want to do New Year's Eve? Young adults want to do New Year's Eve? This is New Year's Eve 1980, right? Yeah. 1980 into 1981. And the band is broken up. But I'm with, I'm, I'm visiting Paco with Tommy DeQuattro. And Tommy's playing at that time with Duke Roblot. Duke Roblot and the Pleasure Kings is DeQuattro and Enright. So Tommy just keeps doing this. He grabs me and grabs me behind the door. And he starts giving the, you know, the, the you know, money signal you know yeah, yeah we can make a ton of money and Paco says 10 grand he'd give us 10 grand to play one night New Year's Eve we said I said look I'll call everybody okay I'll see if they want to do it I mean I'm, I'm up for making money you know I need to make I need a good payday I've been doing uh I've been doing comediac which I was doing uh, two nights a week and just showing the worst movies in the world and doing my voiceover thing Okay. Which was, by the way, this is five years before Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. So I came up with that idea first too. But 
So I was doing that. I was writing a column for the uh, for a paper called the Providence Eagle, and then I, we ended up moving over to the uh, Providence Phoenix later when the Eagle died. So I'm doing that. I'm doing comediac. I'm doing uh, writing for the newspaper. I'm and I'm doing MC work all over the place too. That's another mm-hmm. thing I would always do. People would hire me as an MC. They always wanted me to do stand up comedy, and I always kept saying no, no, no. I did a couple of stand up comedy things just for club owner friends of mine. Yeah. One was for Randy at the living room. Randy yeah, yeah. Randy convinced me to do a stand up act in front of Warren Zevon because Warren had a rider on his contract that said he only wanted a stand-up comedian. There were no stand-up comedians in problems at the time. I said, Randy, I don't have a stand-up act. What he says, uh, and then finally I said, okay, Randy, I'll do it. I said, for a hundred bucks, I'll do it, okay? Yeah. All right, I'll come and do it. I says, I'll do it for you, you know? Did you so, write a stand-up? What? Did you write a stand-up? Oh, sure. I wrote, I wrote 20 minutes, yeah. and by the time I had done about five minutes, people in the audience are throwing beers at me. <laughs> And because all they want is to hear Werewolves of London, they're shouting for Werewolves of London yeah. and for Warren, and Warren because Warren's and they have a rented piano from from Avery Piano in back of me, and as they're throwing the beer up on stage, I'm saying I better get the hell out of here, or they're going to destroy that piano, and Randy's going to end up paying another five hundred bucks that he doesn't have to. Yeah. So I did. I left after five what minutes, and the... I told I explained to him later. I went down to the dressing room. <laughs> Warren's down there in his underwear, and I'm just and I walk in. And, and Randy shows up, and I, and I tell Warren what happened, and Warren and I are just laughing. You know, just, ah. I said, yeah. I told you it wasn't going to work, Warren. So, so anyway. Uh, so you continued writing. What? Continued oh, I continued writing. writing. Yeah. I, I, actually, I started a band after the young adults with Enright and, and, uh, and uh, Chris Bashan, who later be, who was only 18 at the time, but was, he was, who later became the head of Roomful of Blues. Yeah, yeah. But Chris Bashan and, and Enright and Bashan on guitars, John Rufo, our old bass player from the young adults, and, uh, and I played harmonica and saxophones and sang, and I wrote a bunch of new songs for that one. Me and Enright were writing songs together. What was the name of that band? That band was called Rudy Cheeks and the Works. Okay. A very briefly lived band. We played a few plays, flute gigs, played up in Boston. We played in Rhode Island a few times. We played at Lupo's. I mean, yeah. I was keeping my hand in music. I still love playing, but I, I, I didn't know if I could put together a band, and I wasn't sure if that was the way I wanted to go because I still also loved just doing I, – I, you know, I just want and, – and the guys still I was working with basically were, were, were people who were just only interested in being in a band. They weren't really interested in doing the humor stuff. But they considered I was a valuable front man because I, I was people liked me and 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 I could entertain people. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. how how have you stayed connected with music up till today? In uh, well, we stopped. Well, the young adults. What happened was in 1986, I get a phone call from Lupo, and Jim Wilpa wants to do this. Uh, I mean, there's other, you know. You do know that he did a film called Cobra Snake for a Necktie, which was yep. a documentary about us and Bo Diddley. Then I did. Then me and Les Daniels, the late Les Daniels, and me and Jim Wilpark conceived of a movie called Comediac the Motion Picture, which was about me. I was the star of the movie. I was playing the world's worst stand-up comedian, and I would uh, and I was killing members of my audience by doing Three Stooges things like poking them in the eyes, but their eyeballs actually came out. Spraying them with seltzer, which was actually acid, and stuff like that. Oh, it was great. It was it was fun. Yeah. And but that didn't work out because 
Jim couldn't go along with what Les and I, Les and I were trying to be dominant, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, so that never got, uh, Jim never finished editing that. And so that was back about, oh, man, that was in the early 80s, about 82, something like that. How did the documentary come come about? Well, the documentary came about because Jim wanted to be a filmmaker. Okay. And that was back in uh, 77, 78, I think is when he shot it. Yeah. After after we did the Bo Diddley gig the first time in '77, Jim thought I should have captured this on film. Oh, okay. So he he rented the equipment and stuff like that. And then the next year, '78, he shot us and Bo Diddley playing yeah. live at Lupo's. Yeah. Okay. So that's how that came about. So but so then Jim Jim did a few other short films. He did one about poetry that was nominated for an Academy Award wow. for best short film. Yeah. So Jim's doing pretty good with his film career. And then he comes up with the idea for this, for this uh, complex world movie. Yeah, okay. And he wants to call, and, and I get a phone call from Lupo about a year before we shot this, and this was shot initially in 1987. So about 86, I get a phone call from, from Lupo, and he says, he says, Jim and I want to do this movie, but we've got to have the young adults. And it was such a crazy idea because he wants to make an independent film. We know how much money it costs to make a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're just going, holy cow, Lupo wants to take all the money he's make, made at Lupo's over the years and pour it into a giant hole to make a movie. But he said, I can only do it. I said, he said, we can only do it with the young adults. I said, okay. Why do you feel that? that was I said, let me, let me talk to the other guys. Let me call uh, Jeff and Dave. Was that the last time that the young adults had played? Was that New Year's Eve show, like 80 to Yeah, right, exactly, okay. 80, 81. Yeah, that was the last time the young adults yeah. played. Yeah, and that's a pretty profound impact that you guys have had. You know, I mean, five years of not playing. And five years without playing. And, still and, and Lupo says this. And so I said, okay. I said, let me talk to Jeff and, 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 and Dave and see what they – and I, by this, at this point, Dave has moved to New York City. Mm-hmm. So he's not even around. And Jeff, Jeff's idea is this. Jeff had the, had the most genius idea of all the whole thing. His response was, that is such a ridiculous idea that we've got to do it. <laughs> we've got to do it. He says, this is, that is so stupid, we've got to do it. Yeah. I said, yeah, I said, Jeff, I said, I have to agree with you. It's nuts. We've got to do it. Yeah. So, Dave, like so Dave, and Dave goes along with it, too. Yep, we've got to do it. Yeah. So we said, all right. So basically, we didn't know they were going to call the movie Complex World at that time or anything. We had no idea. But they said, you know, but it was all going to be based around an evening at Lupo's where they're going to blow up the club. And that we are, um, and we're basically the band playing that night at the club. Now, we had, there was cameo appearances by the guys from NRBQ and Rumpful and, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff in there. And Stanley, the star of the movie, Stanley Matus, Jim and Lupo met him because... We played a gig with him up in up in uh, in, in uh, Massachusetts, up in Brookline, and we knew his and and we brought him down to play at Lupo's one night. Yeah, okay. So that's how they knew about Stanley, and they thought Stanley should be yeah, based the whole story around this character that Stanley's going to play. Yeah, and I love Stanley; he's great. So it was fun, and I get to play myself, so that's not too hard. Yeah, what was it like doing the movie then? Like well, 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 we did. We shot. Basically, they shot us. Um, they recorded our our set, our, our entire evening. As a matter of fact, the entire yeah. evening with us. And uh, when they shot us uh, doing the uh, for our performance for the film, it was shot during the day, and we were basically lip syncing and faking playing. So 
so if you watch the movie, you'll say, there's no way that's lip syncing because we were such good lip syncers. Wow. Did the movie help with any like resurgence of the young adults, like fandom or anything like that? Uh, I don't think so. With that? No. no. Yeah, not that I know of. I mean, the movie came out. Well, the movie didn't really. Uh, oh, the movie played for. Well, the movie did well in Rhode Island. It played. It was the longest running film ever at the cable car cinema. It wow. played for like something like like two months straight every night for two months straight. Wow. Which was pretty unusual. Like the, I know that the young adults have, have played some reunion shows. And yeah. Okay. Well, what happened about. after that? Well, here's what happened. The original Lupos was closing down. So he had a closing. So he called yeah, the young adults. I've got to play for the mm -hmm. final weekend of the original Lupos. So we did that. And then the, a couple of years after that, I think it was 1991, the, um, the new Lupos opens up. Not the one at the uh, at the uh, theater, but the one uh, the one on further down Westminster, yeah, in the old Peerless Building, I think it was. Yeah. So when that one opens, we play that too. So it and, and it's like us, Roomful, and NRBQ. Cool. So yeah, so you know, like yeah, you know, but anyway, so that was it. 1991. That was it, and I thought we'll never play again. Um, we're not planning on doing anything. We're not thinking about it. Nobody, you know, we've all got our own lives. Jeff is doing what he's doing. Dave's still in New York, and he's playing with this uh, country swing band, which yeah. is fabulous. You know, Were you doing called music? Western Western Caravan. Were you doing? And music? I'm and I'm oh I'm playing with people here and there. Oh, I started a band called the um, Jackie Beat Orchestra in the 1990s. And that was with horn players, and it's all just, I wrote a whole bunch of new songs, mm -hmm. mo mostly just me, but sometimes some of them with Enright, with Tom Enright, and that was Mark Tabor on piano, Tommy Enright on, on guitar, a guy named Don Payne on bass, Jack Moore on drums, and I had a couple of, I had Clem was in the band, um, who else was in the band, uh, Kirk Feather on alto saxophone, you know, so I had a, it was yeah. a great band, I loved that yeah. band. That was a really good, and I had a, a backup, a Karen a Capelli singing, uh, singing uh, background vocals with me, mm -hmm. but I wanted her to come up front and play, sing well. So I was the lead singer, and I played, still played a little bit of saxophone yeah. and harmonica, most, a lot more harmonica. Because I, I kind of, with the young adults, I really kind of, finally as the young adults, I rarely played harmonica. It was almost always saxophones, but I still like playing harmonica. Yeah. And I sit in with Montgomery and stuff like that. Play, we play harmonica duets and stuff, you know. Yeah. So that would be funny because I like playing harmonica still, you know, and I can still play, you know. Yeah. You know, so I can still do that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so I kept playing music, uh, you know, guys, it's been a theme throughout my entire life. Oh, so we did the, and then, and then after the Jackie Beat Orchestra fell apart because there was no great demand for a big band like that with all original funny songs, you know. So I played Chans a few times. We played Lupos, you know. We played AS220 a bunch okay. of times. But that theme of having humor. Yeah, part it was always, it's always part of it. Always part of it. Yeah, okay. And how about, were you recording at this time? Or do you have, like, recordings of Well, there's, there's uh, yeah, there are some recordings of, uh, yeah, you can catch most of them on SoundCloud. Yeah, they, we recorded it at uh, Normandy Sound. We recorded a song that Enright and I wrote called Providence USA. 
always I always liked I always enjoyed writing songs. Uh, almost more than I enjoy playing, to tell you the truth. Really? Why yeah, because I felt a real that? sense of accomplishment. Because I felt that's my true gift, is writing songs. But have you ever written songs for other performers? Did you ever get Well, no, no. I don't think that anybody was going to be interested in, in, in doing, no. Yeah. no. Well, if somebody asked me, I would have. Yeah, but okay. nobody ever asked me. Oh, all right. I mean, I wasn't really going to pursue others because I didn't see anybody doing the kind of stuff I was doing. Was anybody else out there trying to? And if they did, if they were doing mixing humor with their music, like Bill Harley, they do their own music. They do their own songs. Yeah, okay. So why would they want to be, you know, doing one of mine and have to, you know, split up the money with me, you know? <laughs> I understand. I mean, listen, it's hard to make a living doing this, and, and I want to be supportive of them and them making a living, too. Yeah. So what I've gotten into is painting now, you know, but that's because my friend Sunny is the most fabulous painter in the world. And she's, I'm so, I mean, I mean, I'm nowhere near the painter she is. And I never will be. She has some real skills, mm -hmm. but she, but I wanted to do it because I got very, I, I got re renewed interest in visual art because of how awestruck I am by her work. Wow, and she's just the best person in the world anyway. And I just... Yeah. That's what. That's why. I, that's why I care so much about why I connect so deeply with her is because she is somebody who is so much like me on the level of just wanting to create, be uniquely creative. Yeah. I understand that completely. Yeah. Well, you're a pretty heavily awarded person in your life. Can you talk about some of the awards you've got for? Yeah. I've, yeah, I've gotten you? a bunch of awards for some whatever reason. I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's okay. I mean, I'm, I I don't think of myself in that in those terms. I just, but I mean, yeah, just you know, around here, you know, I mean, I've been in the you know the Pawtucket Hall of Fame because I'm from Pawtucket, and and the you know the Music Hall, Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame because of uh, supposedly because of my influence on not just music but also on uh, on you know the early bands in the, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and and late you know the the, the bands that came after the Fabulous Motels and Young Adults who were doing, you, you know, original music, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were a real, you know, a real standard for them. We were a real, you know, um, something that they could look up to and, and, and try to be like, you know, not, not, not stylistically, but, but, but the idea that somebody can make a living doing original music yeah. at, at clubs and local, and, and, you know, people really didn't see that as a possibility until uh for a for a long time until until uh we came along and, and the young adults were really successful a huge thank you to rudy for doing this interview please make sure to subscribe to where the living room used to be and watch for some bonus spots to come out soon thanks for listening should i go to college world.